Hello and welcome back to the Armchair F1 podcast. And what a week it has been. The Saudi Arabian Grand Prix, I think, lived up to quite a few expectations. Or I'd say perhaps we had low expectations of the track going into the race, but the racing exceeded expectations by far. It was a weekend of drama, controversy, and it sets us up going into the finale at Abu Dhabi with Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton equal on points going into the finale. This is so exciting. This is this is literally the dream scenario going into that final race. I remember two races ago when people were talking about, oh, could we have equal points going into the final race? I was like, yes, this is going to be amazing. This is going to be so exciting. And my dreams have come true. We have such a close battle coming into the final weekend. I, I sound so excited right now. That's because I am. That's because this weekend is going to be incredible. But as ever, if you like what we're doing here at the Armchair F1 podcast, then please do give us a follow on social media at Armchair F1 pod and listen to us as well across all major streaming platforms. Joe Spagnoli is back this week. Joe, I'm excited. How excited are you? I can't take this anymore. (laughs) It's just... Everything I've said on the last few podcast appearances, I hope we don't get an unfair DNF. We haven't had one. I hope they don't take each other out of the race. It hasn't happened, although it came pretty close. I hope we don't get another tyre blowout. It hasn't happened. Literally level on points going into the final weekend. A 22 race season and they cannot be separated. Incidentally, not to sound like a nerd right off the bat, do you know the last time Formula One went into the final round with two drivers tied on points? 1974. God damn you. I I, 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 I always underestimate the prep you do for these, yes. I have it written down on my phone. This is the first Drivers' World Championship um, to go to the wire since 2016, the first between drivers from different teams since 2012. And as you said, the first time and only the second time actually in F1 history that we're going in to the final race equal on points. The only other time being 1974. Also, not that we care as much about the constructors, but this is also the first time as well since 2008 that we have both championships alive in the final race, which is so exciting indeed. And Let's get straight into it. And we have to, of course, talk about the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix and sort of how we've ended up in this scenario that we have. And I guess obviously going into the weekend, Max Verstappen, eight points ahead of Lewis Hamilton um, going into that race. Quite a controversial one, it's fair to say. Lewis Hamilton coming through to win the race in the end. Um, again, starting so starting from pole, quite a few controversies with the red flags, of course, a red flag delay with both Hamilton and Bottas pitting Verstappen, then changing his tyres under the red flag, allowing him to jump Lewis Hamilton for the starting stand after the first red flag. Verstappen then gets overtaken off the line by Lewis Hamilton going into turn one. Verstappen goes off track, pushes Lewis Hamilton off. He then goes on ahead. And then we have this extraordinary scenario in the red flag where Red Bull and Mercedes are literally negotiating with race director Michael Massey over what to do over this incident. Verstappen then starts behind Lewis Hamilton. He then gets past him again. And then for the rest of the race, we're treated to a titanic Lewis Hamilton-Max Verstappen battle that undoubtedly pushes the boundaries, in many ways goes beyond the boundaries of perhaps what we would regard as acceptable racing. But at any point, it looked like both drivers could have come to quite significant blows 
in that race. Indeed, Max Verstappen going off the track many times to keep his position. Then around lap 37 to 43, we had this just insane few laps where at first Verstappen was then asked to let Lewis Hamilton by going into the final corner. Verstappen slows. Lewis Hamilton, without the communication from the team, goes into the back of Max Verstappen. Verstappen then keeps ahead for the next few laps. The allows Lewis Hamilton pass going into the final corner. Only then for Verstappen to come past him again, going in straight away, going into that final corner. He then gets a time penalty, lets Lewis Hamilton through. And then from there, Lewis Hamilton takes the win and the fastest lap to go into this race level on points. I feel that explanation hasn't done this race the justice it deserves. But we have to start, of course, just talking about Hamilton, Verstappen. Just how good was that battle out from? You know, in terms of the actual racing between Max and Lewis, it was pretty average, at least by 2021 standards. However, as is the way the Jeddah Street Circuit was built, designed, and the way the race ended up, we just have so much controversy surrounding it that we could probably talk about it for another month, but we have a Grand Prix this weekend, so we need to get through it quickly. It's pretty common this season to talk about, you know, the Hamilton-Verstappen incident. This time, you actually have to qualify which incident you're talking about because there were so many throughout the race. It, I, do you know what? It's it, it, it's another standard of 2021 being, I've said it before and I'll say it again, the greatest title fight in the history of this sport, that there is just so much to talk about when there wasn't even that much actual on-track racing between the two of them in the race. It's, um, yeah, I mean, where do we even start, Cam? Well, let's, let's go through this, just through some of the instances, lap by lap. So, obviously, let, let's start off um, with lap 15. This is the first, this is the starting standing start after the first red flag. And this is when Verstappen um, gets ahead of Lewis Hamilton by cutting that um, first corner. Now, we have this sort of weird negotiation in the red flag period between Michael Massey and Mercedes and Red Bull um, over where... And Max Verstappen should start. And in the end, he falls back two places to start behind Esteban Ocon and Lewis Hamilton at the next restart. Now, we can come on to talk a little bit more about the stewarding in general later. But I guess just, just starting off with this, because it showed the intensity that Verstappen really had throughout this weekend and indeed within the last few races as well. But that negotiation um, between um, Red Bull and Mercedes was... It was quite something and something I've certainly never seen before. It's actually, okay, so that's the common consensus. However, I have it on good authority from people who are a little bit closer to the sport proximity-wise. That's actually fairly normal. Discussions like that, they happen pretty regularly. The only difference this time is there was a red flag and Sky Sports F1 were clearly desperate to find something to talk about while they were repairing the barriers. So they broadcast a conversation which otherwise wouldn't have been broadcast. It's actually pretty normal for the race director, in this case, Michael Massey, to offer a team something and, and say, well, do this or it goes to the stewards and they'll make a they'll make a decision above me, which I will then have to enforce. What wasn't particularly normal about this was Michael Massey seeming to forget the existence of Alpine F1 and Esteban Ocon saying, well, so drop Max behind Lewis so we'll be in P2. So he'll still be ahead of Lewis in that case because Ocon will be in front. Uh, so, so, so Michael, just to be sure, the order is going to be Ocon, Hamilton, Verstappen. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. It's just, do you know what? Michael Massey gets a lot of criticism. A lot of it, I feel, is unfair. 
that particular moment in the race, even though the actual negotiation, deal or no deal kind of thing, that's fairly normal. But that moment of incompetence, yeah, it's kind of a microcosm of the whole Jeddah weekend. Indeed. And that, of course, we'll go back to the stewarding in a bit. But let's now go arguably to the flashpoint of both Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen's um, intense battle throughout the race. Lap 37, Joe, was remarkable. So let's let's start off in two parts. Firstly, um, Lewis Hamilton gets behind Verstappen on DRS straight going into turn one overtakes um, Verstappen, only then for Verstappen to then get ahead again by cutting the corner at turn one. Um, After getting ahead, he's told to give the place back and then he does so coming into the final corner, stamps on his brakes, Verstappen. But then Lewis Hamilton, we understand not getting the communication through on this, he admitting his confusion at what Verstappen was doing, then goes into the back of the Red Bull, damages his front wing and indeed we get the iconic the iconic shot of Toto Wolf throwing his headphones down onto the desk. I mean, that that whole lap, just, just take us through the lap. I think firstly, Verstappen, they're obviously being forced to give the place back and we'll come on to the penalty for that later. But then secondly, just that flashpoint, that crash between Hamilton and Verstappen, what was going on there? A whole load of miscommunication. So as far as I understand it, and by all means, correct me if I'm wrong, something was discussed. I I don't know whether this came directly from Michael Massey or from somewhere else. They told Jonathan Webb, the Red Bull statistician, basically a a similar kind of offer, I imagine. Max needs to give the place back. He gained a position by going off track. Therefore, you need to give the place back or face a five-second penalty, which in the context of this battle, would definitely have put Verstappen to second because Hamilton was, despite being at a massive tyre disadvantage at that point, somehow remaining within two seconds around a track as crazy as that. This message was passed through to Max Verstappen by his race engineer, Jean-Pierre Lambiasi. However, Hamilton and Mercedes were not at any point told about this. Now, at a lot of venues, that would perhaps not be a problem. And so when Max Verstappen slowed down, Hamilton would have, as people have said, why didn't he go left and go by? There's a very good reason why he didn't jerk to the left and go around, namely that at most tracks, there's there's runoff or grass there in case something goes wrong. Here, there's concrete walls, which would have done a hell of a lot more damage to Hamilton's car than the back of Verstappen's Red Bull. But the real crisis point here is just how weird... Verstappen's behaviour was in trying to get the position back. So the theory is behind what he was doing that he wanted Hamilton to pass him before the DRS activation line, before the final corner turn 27. This would have meant that going out of this corner, Verstappen being less than a second behind Hamilton at this point, would be able to use the drag reduction system and immediately go past Lewis Hamilton. Tactically speaking, that makes sense until you realise that you're literally not allowed to do that. 2008 Spa set this precedent. I don't actually remember the incident very well, but Lewis Hamilton gets a post-race penalty for doing exactly that, conceding a position and then overtaking using slipstream before the next corner. Verstappen would not have been allowed to do that. So I don't know why on earth Max continued doing this. Secondly, you say he stamped on the brakes. That was the last thing he did. If you look at the telemetry, for most of that manoeuvre, Max never actually touched the brakes at all. He slowed down, if this makes sense, at a very slow rate. And I'm going to put this into Lewis Hamilton's perspective, because the angle we had just before the collision with the back of Verstappen's car 
was sort of lower than the T cam. You've almost got Hamilton's perspective. I ask you, Cam, what did you think Max Verstappen was actually doing? Because from where I was sitting, it didn't look like he was letting Hamilton through because he hadn't pulled off the racing line. He wasn't going that slowly. I thought his tyre was delaminating. Yeah, for me, the fact that it, it didn't look like he was moving off. Like when drivers in the past have like, made a conscious effort to let drivers through they'll move off the racing line or sure they'll they'll slow down and to be fair Verstappen was slowing down like he was going to let Lewis Hamilton pass it was his position on the track and I think you're right there that really didn't make that very clear and if I was Lewis Hamilton you know I could have just been thinking not knowing that what the message was well Verstappen may have a problem right now it may be a tire problem it may be an engine problem I need to try and stay back I need to stay away from this and not make any erratic moves because I could damage my car which in the end was what happened. Um, I've got the stewards report on this incident up right now. And um, for context, Max Verstappen were going to receive a 10 second time penalty for this incident. And just to kind of go through the main bits um, of the stewards verdict on this. So the key point from this, so at turn 21, so a few corners before um, Verstappen was um, told to give the position back to Lewis Hamilton strategically. The point, again, Red Bull were making, obviously referring to that DRS line. Indeed, the next sentence says this. It was obvious that neither driver wanted to take the lead prior to DRS detection line three. And they acknowledge that, okay, Lewis Hamilton probably could have gone past Verstappen, but didn't want to take the lead going into that DRS detection line. They understand that. Um, But then, interestingly here, what the stewards say was the reason for the penalty, they emphasise the sudden breaking by Verstappen Um, was determined to be erratic and hence the predominant cause of the collision and thus the 10 second time penalty as standard was given and in particular discussing that braking um, it was a 69 bar braking um, there from Verstappen which resulted in 2.4 g's of deceleration and it was that sudden braking for when Lewis Hamilton went into the back of him as well that was ruled by the stewards to be what justified the penalty there. And I know there's been a lot of controversy. There have been many people who have said that the stewards acted wrongly in this scenario, that they shouldn't have given Verstappen the penalty, that what he was doing wasn't particularly out of order. There have been many people saying that the stewards were totally right. Verstappen was, as the stewards say, erratic. I sit with the, I sit with the stewards on this. I think it was an erratic move that it was again, that sudden, deceleration it didn't look like Max Verstappen was really wanting to let Lewis Hamilton pass in any kind of sporting context he was doing it strategically and frankly dangerously as well Joe do you agree with the stewards on this um I I agree with the two penalty points applied to his license and in real terms that's of course the penalty that's going to have more of an impact if any because the 10 second penalty has made the square root of Jack all difference in the final result because Ocon and Bottas were so far behind. So Hamilton retains his second place. For something like that, I'm actually surprised that they didn't go along the lines of a grid penalty for Abu Dhabi. Um, however, I can understand why they don't want to because, again, it's a historic event, one of the greatest title fights ever. We want the, the two of them to go up against each other, not be sandwiched behind inferior cars because if you're stuck behind a car at Yas Marina, that's the end of your race. But... The thing that gets me with Verstappen, a lot of people have said how dangerous it was, how dangerous it was. I don't really think it's the danger. It's the sheer stupidity Mm. of what he did because 
suppose suppose for a second that he was trying to damage Hamilton's car. That's the idea. Like he wanted to take either Hamilton out of the race or compromise his race. So Hamilton goes in with his front wing, damages the front wing. He's forced to pit for a new one. He's gone into the back of Verstappen's car. So Verstappen's rear wing or rear undercarriage is going to be damaged. Hamilton pits the next lap, having lost six or seven seconds without a front wing, gets a new one, goes out and he's fine, relatively speaking. You can't change a rear wing. You can't repair the under tray of a car. So if Verstappen's car was compromised, that's the end of his race. If he loses his rear wing, I'm pretty sure it's instant disqualification anyway, because good luck getting a Formula One car around a track without a rear wing assembly. So I don't understand it at all. It's another incident, just like at Interlagos, where I don't understand the rationale behind it, like holding up Hamilton in the way that he did, pushing him off the track. That's not going to keep Lewis behind you for 20 plus laps, but but it could very well get you a penalty that drops you further down the order, order once Lewis has passed you. So again, just the sheer stupidity of it. And if there was any question after Brazil and Qatar that Lewis has got Max rattled, then he absolutely does. In terms of mentality, if not necessarily performance, Verstappen is choking this and badly. Yeah, I just didn't understand it whatsoever. Like the way the way the whole move went, and I understand Red Bull wanted the emphasis upon doing it strategically. You don't want to lose too much time doing these moves. But at the same time, when it's a point of, you know, you've cut across the corner, you've gained an advantage, you know, the rules are very clear. And if you're letting a driver through, what Verstappen did did not look at all like he was letting a driver through. If Lewis Hamilton hadn't been told the instruction, had Verstappen moved off the track, you know, Lewis Hamilton's been in this sport for for 15 years now. He's an intelligent driver. In fact, any driver, even a rookie, even Nikita Mazepin will have known that if a driver moves off the racing line and slows down, you overtake them. Unless there's literally anything in the rules that says you can't, which I think perhaps under a safety car, but even then, I think you'd be allowed to overtake them if they're going over and slowing down in the way that Verstappen was. So, yeah, it, it, it's, it was ridiculous, I think, to, to put it bluntly. And the whole scenario going through from that 37 to 43, because I understand at that point, race control and go to um, Red Bull to say for that move earlier on the lap and say, OK, you've got to let Lewis Hamilton pass. He then goes to do it again on lap 42. Hamilton gets passed and then Verstappen immediately back through into turn into turn 27, pushing Lewis Hamilton almost virtually to the edge of the track. The lap after um, finally, so Max Verstappen at this point has a five second time penalty for that move and gaining an advantage there. Lewis Hamilton gets passed on the next lap on lap 43 and then virtually himself pushes Verstappen to the edge of the track to try and stop him doing what he did last time. Lewis Hamilton then goes on to win the race from there. But I mean, that whole scenario, um, having got the penalty and then Verstappen letting Lewis through to only then go and take again. I mean, you said that um, Max is rattled. I, I've not seen a greater example of it than just that couple apps. I mean, just explain what was really going on in Max Verstappen's head at that point. You've asked me a question that I can't answer. I can't explain it because, again, it comes down to just how stupid it is. Like the whole let Hamilton through and then immediately overtake him. You can't do that. The only F1 context in which you can do that is on the official F1 game by Codemasters because the penalty system does not work. That is the only F1 related context where that is allowed. So I don't know what Max was doing and, and Mercedes weren't worried by it. Just look at Toto Wolff's reaction. He was just, 
yeah, that's Max. It's gonna it's gonna happen again in another lap's time. Like he wasn't that wasn't the the headphone smash incident. Mm. That was the collision earlier on. Incidentally, if you watch that video, don't look at Toto. Look at the it might even be their director of communications, but he honestly he looks like a work experience kid in the background, <laughs> just looking at Toto like, oh my god, who am I working for? <laughs> but but like I can't explain it. That's the thing. I, I genuinely can't explain it. Everything that Max did over that period of the race either put his car at a greater risk than Lewis's or risked him getting penalties. And I know there were miles ahead, but penalties all add up. And of course, there is also the chance that it leads to a grid drop or otherwise in Abu Dhabi. So yeah, I can't explain it. Yeah. And of course, those penalties added up and in the end added up to 15 seconds, which yes, the 15 seconds didn't really make much of a difference to the final race result. But just the fact he had those penalties, the fact he got the penalty points as well, I mean, it really does show, I think, just, uh, I mean, perhaps it's a maturity thing that obviously Max Verstappen really in his first championship battle coming to the end of the season, um, not being in this position, maybe it's just a pressure thing and Lewis Hamilton having been in this position multiple times, not only predominantly winning the championships when he's been in this position, but also having tasted defeat as well, has a lot more um, experience of this. Before we go on to the stewards, perhaps, and some of, the decision-making there. I want to bring you to what Max Verstappen said in his press conference ahead of this weekend in Dubai. I mean, firstly, ahead of the weekend at Abu Dhabi. I mean, creds to Liberty and to the FIA for putting um, Hamilton and Verstappen together in the same press conference. It was guaranteed to happen. But um, within that press conference, um, Verstappen said, it seems other drivers do the same things and only I get a penalty. The only thing I ask is that it's fair for everyone. That's not the case. I don't agree with him. I think there've been. I think if anything, it's more the other way around. I think there's been many examples. Just take Brazil for example, of Verstappen not getting a penalty um, when he was justly um, deserved one for pushing Lewis Hamilton off the track. And indeed, you look at, for example, the Silverstone incident earlier on in the year. You know, Lewis Hamilton short won the race but he's still got that 10 second time penalty. There's a lot of scenarios where you can look back on and say, arguably, I would say that Verstappen has been treated fairly. I think in most of these scenarios, what's your thoughts on that, Joe? When's the last time that one driver brake checked another resulting in contact and then drove away? When is the last time a driver has immediately re-overtaken the guy that they were told to let through and not received a penalty. Hmm. It's stupidity. It's just bla- it's blatantly untrue. What he did in Brazil, if you're going by Austria rules, because of course there were different stewards at Austria, as we discussed in last week's podcast, the stewards change from race to race, which I really suggest the FIA do something about next year because it's resulting in a lot of problems. You know, if by that logic, Max should have had a penalty, but he didn't. He did not get the penalty that Lando Norris and Sergio Perez did at Styria at Brazil for something that was so much more obvious. I, it's another one of those things. I honestly do not know where he's coming from. I, 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 again, I can't explain it. It's not even I disagree with him. It's just factually incorrect. Yeah, I, I was just kind of sore and I was almost bewildered. And obviously, I know maybe... I do have a bias as a Lewis Hamilton fan, but even then I expect clean racing. I expect fair racing and I expect drivers to get their comeuppance 
when they do things that deserve a penalty. And I almost feel I don't know if Verstappen kind of is playing into the whole, oh, well, this is a championship. The stewards should be intervening in that. We should be having the freedom to race as hard as we like. And again, Red Bull have really been pressing this. Oh, you need to let the drivers race. You need to let them take risks. That's what racing is. But, you know, there is a point where rules have to be enforced. And it's almost, I don't know if you get the feeling perhaps that Red Bull kind of believe they should be not necessarily immune from the rules, but almost feel that the rules don't always apply to them in a sense. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know whether it's Red Bull as a whole institution, but that point has been raised a lot this week in more informal F1 communities about Christian Horner, about Helmut Marko, about Jos Verstappen, although he's not really a member of Red Bull, he's just there and, oh my God, I can't stand him. <laughs> about, not so much not so much Jean-Pierre Lambiassi, but Jonathan Webb, the chief strategist. Like, there is some, there has there has to be something said about the environment of Red Bull because on the one hand, you can blame the FIA for not sanctioning Max for what he does. And I think it's fair to say that Max is trying more because he has gotten away with so much over the course of his now quite long Formula One career. But also that team environment, they enable the hell out of him. How can Christian Horner go on the team radio and say, well, someone's got your back, Max, for what you did because you've been voted driver of the day. Like the fans agree with what you did. What did the fans do when David Coulthard interviewed Max Verstappen? Booze all around. In Saudi Arabia, of all places. It's not like you've gone to Silverstone and done that. You'd expect booze there. That's Lewis's backyard. In a track that has never hosted a Grand Prix before, you had that many booze. And you, you still think, and you're still going to tell Max that the fans are on his side. I think half the no. people who vote for Driver of the Day are Dutch anyway. Half the people who voted for Driver of the Day voted before that incident. But genuinely, I think it was the same lap that a driver of the day graphic came up with Verstappen leading on 27%. I'm thinking, first of all, why is driver of the day open so early? There's 13 racing laps to go. But also, who was voting for him? Mm. Really? I mean, there weren't many great drives in Jeddah, partly because of how awful Jeddah is as a circuit. But there are two pretty obvious contenders for driver of the day. Lewis Hamilton, Esteban Ocon. And yet somehow Max got it. Again, I can't explain that. I feel this is just becoming a theme today that there's just not a lot we can explain. And I think that just sums up how mad this weekend was. And I think something else that I think we're going to have difficulties explaining is the stewarding this weekend. And if you thought our um, our complaints against the stewards last week were quite something, then I think this week we've got a whole other chart we need to start exploring in terms of the stewards. Because sim- simply put, in my plan for the episode this week, I have literally just written what went wrong the amount of tweets that i saw after that grand prix and by tweets not just sort of established f1 journalists um, people within the f1 community i follow but even you know just some other just some more casual fans i say casual fans people for example like luke james former ball sport editor who i rarely see tweet in a very critical context of f1 But his tweet after the race, just absolutely laying into the FIA, laying into the stewards in that race. If Luke James is annoyed at the stewarding, then I think you can tell that something is wrong. And we've mentioned the inconsistency before. We've mentioned Michael Massey seemingly unable to tell what driver is where at what point on the track. But throughout the weekend, there seemed to just be an entire inconsistency 
in the stewarding and the decisions that were being made were being done too late. They were not necessarily being proportionate to the decisions that were made. I just put it into context, just how much of a farce this was. To be honest, my, my main exposure to it, and more so than any other race weekend this year, I was uh, intently watching the Formula 2 races for no other reason than I wanted to see how this track functioned. Now, to the people who still say the Jeddah Street Circuit is exciting, it's a good track, and they've actually said to me, Joe, you cannot criticise this track, you cannot say it's badly designed. Yes, I can. We had three different starts in Formula 2, not a single one of them were clean. But... It's not even, do you know what? It's not even about penalties, really. Ignore the Hamilton-Verstappen thing. There weren't really that many penalties handed out because, again, there was very little racing around this badly designed street circuit in Saudi Arabia. It's more about just the safety aspect of it. So before the Formula 2 feature race, there had been a Porsche Carrera Cup event that afternoon and one of the barriers outside, was it turn 13, had been damaged. They sent the Formula 2 cars out for their warm-up or formation laps behind the safety car the barrier needed repairing. Why did you send the cars out in the first place? The cars were out there for so long. The safety car then had to take them the other way around into to go back into the pits. We didn't have any idea what was going on. The, the commentators, Alex Jakes and Alex Brundle, I mean, I do not envy their position. They were going through this sort of season recap of highlights of every race. It was such a bad look. It made student radio look like Sky Sports F1 <laughs> because they weren't being told anything. One moment, the race was getting underway in 10 minutes. The next, it said session aborted. Then we didn't know how long it was going to be. This is all just one Formula 2 race, by the way, which ended in a red flag anyway, because if there's an incident in Jeddah, it ends in a red flag because there's no runoff. If it's any other track, it's a safety car because, again, their properly, well des properly designed Jeddah isn't. Getting to the Formula 1, why was the red flag not immediately called when Mick Schumacher took out that barrier? It's not like the barrier became damaged two laps later. Throw the red flag immediately if you're going to need to repair something. And then all the debris on track from the collisions with Vettel and Raikkonen and Sonoda, they never went beyond a VSC. Fernando Alonso was calling for a full safety car. Never happened. We spent, it seemed like, half the race for a period under virtual safety car. That's not racing by definition. And yeah, I, I may I read what my younger brother sent to me on WhatsApp, Cal? Oh, because I think on. he sums it right. So he says... Burning and dismembered bodies scattered across the track, a crater where Turn 1 once stood. Mechanics in the pits are building Mad Max-style battle wagons for the ensuing anarchy. Virtual safety car has been deployed. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that literally just sums up that race. I mean, the, the, the amount of virtual safety cars that were coming out were were quite well it, it was ridiculous by the end of it. And the thing is that there is past precedent for this. I remember I think it was Brazilian Grand Prix. Um, a few years ago, back in 2012, where there have been so many incidents on the track, so much debris, the safety car got put out, allow the track to be cleaned, allow the track to be swept. You then go on, the track's fine. You're not going to have to keep stopping the race. Azerbaijan has had many examples of a lot of incidents, a full safety car, even a red flag in the past deployed to just clean the track, sweep it, and then you're not going to have to have constant virtual safety cars and yeah the red flag thing annoyed me and partly because of the rules as well because of that rule allowing you to change tires under the red flag it we've seen pretty much on so many other incidents this year where barriers have been damaged the red flag is out immediately i mean just just take some other examples i think in imola for example we that was going to very clear that that was going to be 
a red flag or at least a long safety car period. But the amount of debris, the damage that had been done, it was clear something was going to happen. Silverstone, again, a very clear example. You could see that that barrier at Cops needed to be replaced at that point. The red flag came out immediately. It just, it just doesn't make sense. And I understand, because I know that there have been in the past, you know, criticisms perhaps of just going out, put, sticking the red flags out too early, perhaps when UK, you may be able to repair the barriers or sort out something under a safety car. But even then, we're seeing so many times that there, I, I, there is a reluctance, I think, to put the red flag out immediately. And it's almost like, it does not necessarily common sense, but it allows, for example, the situation where Verstappen can effectively stay out. And I don't know if Red Bull were just banking on the fact that there was going to be a red flag, but it is, it is in many ways quite disingenuous. And I think when you go back to that complaint about the tyre rule under the red flag, I don't think the rule itself is necessarily a bad thing. I think the problem is the way that red flags are used and the way that they're apportioned by the stewards. I'm staggered that there was even a debate about the red flag procedure. It's like, that's what you think the problem is, being allowed to change tyres. No, the problem is why wasn't it called straight away? Had it been called straight away, there wouldn't be a debate about do we pit for more tyres? Do, you know, do we stay out and hope to gain from the FIA's incompetence? It was going to end up in a red flag eventually. So I, I just, I do not understand it whatsoever. It's just the, the whole... It, 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 there's an art in a historical precedent, blah, blah, blah. Baku, bring the cars in, red flag, allow them to change tyres there. It's pretty obvious that there's a safety precedent for it. But again, the whole debate doesn't exist if they had just thrown the red flag when they should have. But of course they didn't. Yeah, and I think we've seen it time and time again. And I think if it's very clear that either a driver needs medical attention, either there's damage to a barrier, I think you should pretty much just be prepared to put the red flag out straight away. Even if it's just a preemptive measure, and even if at most you only end up stopping the race for 15, 20 minutes, it's better to do that and not have loads of the race lost to long safety car periods. I think anything where you're thinking you'd be needing like longer than six, seven laps behind the safety car, just red flag it, stop the cars, sort the track out. You can get going again quite quickly. And I just think sometimes there's a lack of common sense and as an F1 fan, it is, it is frustrating because not only does it undermine the rhythm of the race as well, but as we saw many times, it can allow drivers to, I'd say, unfairly uh, take advantage of situations that really shouldn't have been allowed to happen in the first place if, of course, procedures were applied consistently. And I guess one other aspect that, of course, contributed to what we saw over the weekend, and I know, Joe, you are very much looking forward to talking about this. So I say looking forward to just letting off some steam. You've never liked the Jeddah Corniche circuit. What's your, what was your views on it now we've had a Grand Prix here this weekend? Racing-wise, it wasn't as bad as I expected. There was some action, which is more than I was expecting. It's not the worst race of this season either, because mm. Monaco exists, a race where we had genuinely zero racing overtakes throughout the entire thing. So Jeddah's kind of safe from it. It was a lot better than I thought, However, I was expecting a one out of 10 race and we got a three, maybe a four. Mm. I just, the real, the really telling thing is we, as I've said earlier, we had no clean starts in the Formula 2 races, but we did get a clean start in the F1 at the beginning. I was just thinking, 
how did that happen? These cars are bigger. <laughs> they're wider. Like, how did we get a clean start around here? Especially when there's so much more on the line. Like, a, and a there's genuinely the key tight... to Mazepin as well. And the key to Mazepin. But there's a funny thing, Cam. Second restart, when we had all those incidents, Leclerc clipping Perez, which sent Perez out of the race, Russell going out of the race, Mazepin going into the back of Russell. Like, I'm going to put it out there. Not a single one of those drivers are in any way responsible for what happened. That first chicane at Jeddah, the left into right. So turn two, it widens. So you can get like three cars wide at some point. But then it narrows up. And it doesn't narrow between grass or runoff. It narrows between concrete walls. Why would you do that? Visibility is so bad. Charles Leclerc would have no idea there was someone on the other side of Sergio Perez. Again, the track is 100% to blame for that. There's so little visibility from the back of the field. Mazepin, I know we criticise him and we're right to do so. He could do nothing to escape that collision. Like, And up, up the road, you know, the whole thing's caused arguably by Latifi swerving to avoid trouble. So Russell then slows up and the two, you know, Maz- Russell and yeah. Mazepin come together. The alternative is that Latifi gets involved in the accident as well. There's nowhere to go. So safety concern wise, George Russell, he's the president of the Grand Prix Drivers Association, which is the closest thing we have to a driver safety trade union. I've talked about this in the past. He said the track's got a lot of work to do in terms of safety procedures. He also, however, said the track's got a lot to improve on in terms of racing. First sector on that track, no racing whatsoever. Yeah, it's a great driver's challenge, you know, the close proximity of the wall, the tightness of it. You can't race through there. Kimi and Seb, two of the most experienced F1 drivers in history, they proved it. And I was wondering why we had that first DRS zone going through corners rather than before the banking at turn 13. The reason was pretty clear is that if you didn't have that DRS zone there, the dirty air effect would be so bad that by the time you got to the second DRS zone, no one would be able to stay within a second of each other. I'm staggered at how well, again, Lewis Hamilton was able to deal with that dirty air effect to stay so close to Max Verstappen. And my final thing is we talk about you know the raceability of tracks, how good they are for overtaking. More overtaking doesn't necessarily make a track better if the overtaking there is so easy. Overtakes down the Camel Straight at Spa are not interesting. They are so easy to pull off because the DRS to slipstream everything. I thought there was going to be no overtaking at Jeddah earlier in the season, judging from the track map. As it turns out, for half the track, there was basically no overtaking. The other half of it, it was too easy. Mm. It's very rare that Formula One has managed to have a track with both of those sins at once. But Jeddah managed it. I hated this track when I first saw the designs. And as George Russell says, safety-wise, it's got a lot to be desired. Race-wise, it's got a lot to be desired. And let's not forget the only reason that we are racing in Jeddah is because the other Saudi track hasn't even started construction yet. Why are we even racing there? And I'm sure we're all very much looking forward to seeing that Saudi track and how much um, or how much kilometres of it um, will be plastered with Aramco um, branding around the track. Just, I, I think it just really provides a good aesthetic, just having Aramco around virtually the entire track. But um, you mentioned the suitability for F1 of Jeddah. And of course, obviously, that other track in Algeria we know is being built at the moment. But we, of course, have grade one facilities. And to be honest, I was surprised that Jeddah was even granted grade, grade one status, given the fact that, A, it was heavily delayed. That first sector you were talking about reminded me a little bit of Macau in just how narrow it was. 
And I'm thinking no way in the world would Macau ever be granted grade one status. So I really struggled to see how even a track like that could get that status. But in generally, the, the facilities were, were all right. They were flashy. But you could really tell this was a track that was put together at the last minute. And the way that, again, that the racing just happened, it just didn't feel like there was much thought put into it. And as a track, that, as in terms of suitability, safety-wise, there's huge concerns. Racing-wise, as you said, the overtakes happen and stuff. But again, it's not... It, the important thing about overtaking, I think the, the thing when you can tell with DRS zone is... Are the cars still drivers still having to work for the overtake when they're coming to the end of the DRS zone? That's why the Hungaro ring, in many ways, as we've said before, does produce good racing because coming down that main straight, the drivers are still having to work going into that first corner. It's not like they're past that it going down to turn one, the overtake is complete. They're either alongside or braking hard going into turn one. That's how those overtakes happen, and that's how they should be. But yeah, Jeddah just really didn't live up to expectations. So we're supposed to go back to Jeddah at the moment for the second race of next season. I mean, firstly, Joe, do you think we should be going back there at all? And if so, what changes do you think we should make? Nuke it and move it to Durban is my honest answer. Like, I just, what I don't see what you can do with the layout there because it's not like the track's got a sort of it's not like an exoskeleton around facilities it's basically I'm not going to say what it looks like I heard some very weird comparisons on Clubhouse this week but it's a very narrow deal I mean there's water around the track at some bits you're literally right up against the Red Sea so there isn't really a huge amount you can do with it so a redesign of turn one and two is an absolute must working out where the DRS zones are, get rid of the stupid first one, which only exists to facilitate DRS zones two and three. But again, there are just fundamental problems with it. So Valtteri Bottas overtaking Esteban Ocon at the last minute, a real heartbreaker for Alpine, a real yeah boy moment for Mercedes. That's not good track design because he hasn't had to work for it or continue it. So Ocon's been defending for so long and he loses that position through no fault of his own just because the track's designed that way. But again, if you remove that DRS and there's just no overtaking because Jed is such an appalling track. So I really don't know. But the whole thing is, if you're racing at a street circuit, the idea is it's taken less preparation. You're using what already exists, like Baku, which has a lot of problems in and of itself, but it works. This track wasn't, hadn't even started construction until a few months ago. So how can you say that it's a standard make-way track? Stupid. Yeah, it was like sticking a permanent racetrack in a street facility, which just, you might as well just build a permanent facility outside of Jeddah. It's not like there's a lot of desert out there that they can build on. It's not like they've not got enough space. So yeah, it really, I think, does boggle belief sometimes. And I think perhaps the other solution, of course, when we go back to the traditional um, second Grand Prix of the season, shall we just remove Jeddah and instead go to Sepang? Yes. I mean, obviously. <laughs> d- d- or, or Nürburgring or Algarve or think thinks of other grade one track. Basically, Kuwait is a better track than Jeddah and there's barely any grandstands there. So the only thing that you can say about Jeddah is in terms of racing, it's not quite as bad as LaSalle. A bike track, which only had any action because of a DRS zone, which obviously isn't there for MotoGP. 
Like that that's the only positive you can say. I have heard so many people say that this track had exceeded their expectations. Really doesn't really doesn't bode well because the expectations were so low. It's fast, th- therefore it's a good track. What? Is that the own is that the why don't we race at Talladega then if that's all you want? But then by Daytona. the But then by the same criteria, the outer loop of the Bahrain circuit would be of biblical proportions. Like that was exactly decent. That was a decent track for what it was. And to be honest, I would much rather have seen a race there than at Jeddah last weekend. Yeah. And the final point is as well, we've criticized Jeddah a lot here and I have done so in many different areas. This has got nothing to do with Saudi Arabia Mm. as a country, by the way. I am not happy that there is a Grand Prix in Bahrain. Because in terms of like civil rights unrest over the last 10 years or so, you could argue, you could argue, especially around Grand Prix weekends, it's been worse than Saudi Arabia. But I don't mind going to Sakia because Sakia is a really good track for, for its location. And you get really good challenge requiring racing there. My issue with Jeddah isn't Saudi Arabia. It's how awful that track is. And we've been saying this ever since the first designs came out. And the next person who tells me, I can't say this track is badly designed. If my arm was long enough to reach to you and punch you, I would. Well, take your pick because I think Joe's fired up and I would I would like to see this. Right, we're going to just finish talking about Saudi Arabia before we move on to Abu Dhabi quickly. Um, just some brief mentions. Firstly, Esteban Ocon, so unlucky to miss out on the podium. You mentioned that he was your other pick for driver of the day. I think he drove fantastically. Of course, benefited from the red flag. But again, some strong defensive driving from Esteban Ocon. I think really Alpine have had a couple of really good races, but I think he certainly showed this weekend for all of the criticism that he has been getting, that perhaps he's not living up to expectations, that he is still a very good driver, that he is someone who still has potential that arguably he does need to live up to more. But a good weekend from Ocon, very unlucky to miss out on the podium. Anything else to add there? It's on a weekend as well where Fernando Alonso, one of the greatest of all time, had an absolute stinker, relatively Mm. speaking. So yeah, Ocon really needed this. Um, He was good value for the podium, in my opinion, Bottas didn't have a bad race by any means. Um, definitely victimised by the red flag and you know Verstappen and Max being uh, Matt Verstappen and Lewis being chaos magnets. But um, yeah, one of Ocon's better drives of the season. There is honestly an argument to say he was better in Jeddah than he was at Hungary. Hmm. I think Hungary he obviously got lucky by where he positions, positioned his car going into turn one, but certainly in terms of being able to fight. Um, with the midfield cars and even with the Mercedes car around him as well. I think a very good weekend from Esteban Ocon. Alfa Romeo had a very good weekend as well. Um, Both drivers getting into Q2, Antonio Giovinazzi getting into Q3. Now, obviously, considering Giovinazzi is leaving the team at the end of the season, and again, we've spoken about the missed potential of Antonio Giovinazzi a lot, but this was a good weekend for Alfa Romeo. And I guess potentially going into next year, we've seen obviously the Ferrari powertrain has developed over the last few races, and that'll obviously be going in the Alfa Romeo for next season. There are there signs for optimism there. Of course, we mentioned last week that there the issues with the takeover may have compromised him a bit. But a weekend like this, the team functioning well, getting the most out of the car, that surely should be a bit more source of optimism. It's hard to take too much from it because, of course, we're going into a new car, literally new regulations for next year with a whole new driver lineup. And we don't, I mean, it's likely, let's not 
let's not mess around here. It's, they're probably going to have a Ferrari power unit next year. But even now, we're not 100%, I don't think, that they're going to have Ferrari next year. I mean, I'm, I may well be wrong on that, though. So it's hard to take too much from it. But there have been so many weekends this year, especially with Giovinazzi, where this is how they should have ended. But then either bad luck has hit, the team has had a horrendous strategy, cough, cough, Hungary, or Gio's made a stupid mistake on the opening lap, like at Monza. Obviously, this is a performance that's come too late. It goes without saying. But yeah, behind behind those front two of Hamilton and um, Ocon, I think Giovinazzi would probably be my bronze medalist in terms of performance of the day. Uh, to quote Aldas from, um, from Live Fast, it was a great weekend from Giovinazzi because you barely saw him, which not necessarily true in qualifying, but he didn't really put a foot wrong, which especially in the second half of the season is actually a surprise for him. Hmm. Well done, I- Italian Jesus. Indeed, I'm sad we are losing Italian Jesus. Formula E will benefit much from the meme quality that he will bring them. But I think one team whose performance you could, I wouldn't necessarily say it was a meme, but certainly of great concern was Aston Martin. And it was a shocker by their standards. Both drivers out in Q1. Lance Stroll really not looking like he was anywhere near the points at all, coming home in 11th, but really not looking like he was anywhere near that at all. Sebastian Vettel, tripping over himself quite a lot over the weekend, of course, having this rather strange collision with Yuki Tsunoda um, going into Turn 1. We we know Aston Martin have very much underwhelmed this season, and there is a lot of hope um, going into next season with the regulation changes that they can be there and producing more of the performances like they did in 2020. But this was monumentally bad from Aston Martin. And I want to say it's a one-off, and I think, it's a one-off in some respects, but even then, the car has been terrible this season. So just really what went wrong for them and how concerned should they, and I guess we as fans and any Aston Martin fans be? So Lance Stroll didn't get to do a second flying lap in qualifying. Not that I think that would have made much of a difference because look at where they qualified, 17th and 18th, just ahead of the Haases in 19th and 20th. That is as clear as day. You had the ninth fastest car this weekend. This is a team which almost finished third last year. This like low rake versus high rake regulation change stuff at the beginning of the year, that does not explain it. Um, it's pretty clear that a lot of the the focus on that team, and it's not just this car, the car, but also the infrastructure, it's going towards next year, which I know they're owned by a billionaire, but they're still not an incredibly rich team. So it makes sense to prioritise one year over the other. It's the same argument I've made about Haas. Vettel, low-key in the race, was actually pretty good, aside from his races, aside from his mistakes, rather. He made up an awful lot of ground, again, at a track where overtaking was between, between difficult and dangerous. So, yeah, the only positive you can say for Aston Martin out of this weekend is at least the race was better than qualifying because qualifying was... They got packed by Williams and Alfa Romeo. (laughs) How? They were behind the Tifi. I think that says all they need to know there. They've managed to qualify behind Nicholas the Tifi. I don't think they've done that at all, all season. But Aston Martin will be hoping for a better weekend in Abu Dhabi. I think a lot of people will be hoping for a better weekend in Abu Dhabi. And of course, I think we're all excited for what will hopefully be a good championship finale in Abu Dhabi. And I'm sure for both Max and Lewis right now, they know if they do need to make a recovery drive up the field, then at least Vitaly Petrov isn't on the grid to ruin their day for them. But 
you mentioned this before, overtaking at Yas Marina has historically been very difficult. Racing hasn't been something of top quality in the past. There's been two long DRS zones, of course, the back straight coming out of what was the old turn seven. And then the second DRS zone as well, going, I think, down there into turn 11. That has always been the place in the past where overtakes have happened and the rest of the lap, the dirty air has just become too much and drivers often fall outside the one second gap for DRS to be of any use or indeed even allowed to be activated by the time they get to the back straight. Now, this weekend, there's the Yas Marina track has been changed in two significant ways. Firstly, at the end of the first sector, instead of the chicane of turn five and six, which has been sent the past to kind of slow the cars down, break the flow, um, going into that back straight and increase the dirty air that the cars are struggling with there. That sort of chicane going into a tight hairpin has been replaced with this longer sweeping kind of um, hairpin, much sort of wider radius there um, at that corner. That going onto the back straight. And then as well, we've seen at the end of the back straight, instead of this kind of this sort of clumsy off canvas chicane at the end there, again, another sweeping wide radius corner sort of cutting out all of that chicane and cutting out the sort of the tight left-hander after that as well with cars now potentially able to carry much um, quicker speed into what was the old turn 17. I think now it's turn 11 or 12 potentially, but just looking at the new Yas Marina track, what do you expect these changes to have much effect on the racing this weekend? Do you think it'll be for, the positive do you think it will be for the negative turning the old turn five six seven into just one corner i can see mm. at least in theory how that would work bear in mind it's come out of a, a two really high speed corners which throwing up dirty air may make following difficult but i can certainly see a few dives into that hairpin where otherwise it would have been impossible in terms of that as you put it off camber chicane which was a monstrosity, but also a very unique monstrosity. Mm. They're replacing it with that sort of long, I don't know if it's banked or not, but that sort of long, medium Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure it's banked, but it's certainly long. Yeah, I mean, if there's anywhere you would put a banked corner, it's there, not yeah. on the Jeddah Street circuit, but Tilka syndrome. Um, <laughs> I, don't see, I don't see overtakes into there, though, because it's, it's, it's the kind of corner where there's like, that kind of profile, a long straight going into a long sort of medium speed corner, there's usually just one line there, the racing line, which the defending car would have, not the attacking car. So I can't I can't see dives into there going particularly well. Although, I'll be honest, I don't really understand the lack of overtaking at Yas Marina because, as you say, there are two... DRS zones that are right after each other. So for me, it's kind of a red herring anyway. I don't I don't know if these changes will have the desired effect. The bigger change um, in terms of what may have an impact on the racing is the curbs that have been installed on the track. The photos of them came out today. and Sorry, yesterday, as of recording this. Um, the adjective I have heard describing these curves most often is Himalayan. <laughs> I believe these are the same curbs that they had at La Salle that were causing all the tyre problems. So, so, so why did they do that then? Whose yeah, great I mean, idea was this? They worked really well at Los <laughs> They took out like five cars throughout all the sessions. They, they, That's what sorry, want, isn't they, it? They've had three weeks, three weeks to change them. That's that, that's enough time to change the curbs, surely. I don't know if, I don't actually know if it's a matter of changing them. I have a feeling they've been installed Which, since can, can then, you just because these photos are them? new. Is it because they just not unweld them? I, I mean, I've never, yeah, I was but, never good at like, metalwork and welding and stuff at school but like or could you just get something over like a 
like a Swiss army knife or something and just get like a digger to like sort of just run over the curb. Just, you know, or not like with the beer. You got a bit of head on the beer, just like sort of top it off. Just get something that can do that to the curb and literally cut it open at the top. All this stuff about beer, the armchair part of your podcast title is doing a lot of heavy lifting at the moment. But it's, I mean, the, the, the alternative, though, is track limits are not enforced by curbs. They're enforced by the FIA. And we know how that's gone all year. So pick your poison. It, it, I, I'm, I'm not sure what, what poison I would rather have in this scenario. The poison I go for is like an ale. Because that's that's how I would treat my weekends. But yeah. It's, it's going to be a fun weekend. To be honest, co- rather controversially, I didn't particularly mind that clumsy chicane. Uh, when I saw it, I, the, the, the change they made to the hairpin, that made, that, so that first hairpin made sense mm-hmm. because that chicane just cut off any possible overtaking into it. But that chicane, and again, going off by the sort of the metric we had earlier of being able to have overtakes going into the corner so you're not done by the time you go there totally and you're still having to work hard. That was... Again, that braking zone was a place where a lot of drivers like to make moves in the past. We've seen, for example, take Sebastian Vettel back in 2012. He liked using that sort of chicane as a way to sort of go into the braking zone and then get ahead of the cars. And we've seen, again, overtakes both on the inside and the outside as well. We've seen some good racing at that bit of the track. So I don't understand why that bit has been changed. I think I'm right in saying Ocon also made a really good move on one of the racing points for like ninth place in last yeah. year's race. I'm remembering an overtake for ninth. That's the kind of references you have of overtaking. At Abu Dhabi, same, same, but- same with science as well. Back in 2019, that move into 10th at that same corner. Yes. And that was, yeah, it was ultimately a, a championship deciding point one way or another. I can't remember exactly how it worked, but no, you're hundred percent correct. Um, yeah, it also cleaves a lot of lap time off. That, that mm. Removing that complex and turning it into one corner is probably going to take, in real terms, four or five seconds off the lap, give or take. I really don't like this push to make tracks shorter, especially when I have an agenda of getting more cars onto the grid. So, yeah. I mean, say what you like about that, that, that hellscape of the left, right, left, left, all sort of off camber. It was one of the u- most unique sections in the sport. And in terms of raceability yeah it's not very nice to drive around but i can see it working more than the current change and to be fair as well i suppose one thing on the um on of course on the point of the cars coming through the corner obviously the track's getting shorter there are still only 55 laps so it does mean that the race will be slightly shorter they're not adding on an extra lap to compensate I think I'm right in saying, though, that it's not just in simulations. Abu Dhabi races tend to last quite a while. Mm. So that might just be, that's not even a, a, you know, a miscalculation. That's just correcting the earlier miscalculation of how long these races go. It's, it's like Marina Bay, Singapore. Those races go on for a long time, not because they feel like they do, just because they actually do. Yeah, well, perhaps this weekend will be one that we'll, we'd quite like to have go on for a bit longer. But... Of course, it is a title fight this weekend. We are coming into the final race now. So much to look forward to. Um, Before we start, and we'll come on to, obviously, who we think is going to win the championship um, later on. But I want to ask very quickly. um, We've heard Michael Massey was speaking earlier about the potential um, of a Lewis Hamilton-Max Verstappen collision and what the FIA would do in response to this. And they have said that they will potentially um, dish out um, point penalties um, to both Lewis and Verstappen. There we've heard of potential race bans 
for next year as well, disqualifications. Of course, the big the precedence for this, of course, being uh, the Michael Schumacher Damon Hill collision in 1994, um, where no action was taken at that point, and then Michael Schumacher's collision with Jacques Villeneuve in 1997, where Schumacher was disqualified from the championship. I mean, the stakes are high this weekend, but do you do you think we really could be into the territory where a, a crash settles the championship? I've heard this so many times. I've had to listen to so many people that are convinced, absolutely convinced that Max is going to take Lewis out because, of course, if the championship was to finish today, Max would be champion on countback. He has nine wins. Lewis has eight. That's how tie breaks work, at least at the first round. These people, I mean, they always use the example of Prost versus Senna in 89, Senna versus Prost in 1990, and, of course, Schumacher versus Hill, completely forgetting that Michael's move on Jacques Villeneuve in 1997 saw him excluded not just from the race, but from the whole season. By the way, Michael's move on Jacques Villeneuve, check the highlights. It didn't work. To quote Martin Brundle, Michael, you hit the wrong part of him, my friend. Michael ended up in the gravel trap. Jacques Villeneuve ended up finishing third and becoming the champion. He still got disqualified for that. So if, if Max Verstappen was, as I constantly hear, to take Lewis Hamilton out... So the championship finishes 369 and a half points each and Max automatically champion. First of all, Max is disqualified from the championship. The historical precedent is there, but it's not just that. I've already said about how great this championship has been and I don't want to go on forever. We've been so lucky, especially in the last few races, not to have had a breakdown, not to have had a puncture, not to have had the two cars retiring from a race that would change the championship battle. This has been about as perfectly coincidental for a championship battle as we've ever had. The first time we've gone into a race on equal points between two drivers since 1974. If Max Verstappen or Lewis Hamilton does something to do that, then we have been robbed of the greatest title decider in Formula One history. And especially in the case of Max, his career would not recover from this. Max has been burning bridges all year. We know about how much he gets along with Lando Norris and the Team Redline boys in the past. Even Lando Norris is criticising Max's driving this year. Charles Leclerc and others. If he was to take that extra step, his career would honestly never recover from it. Even if professionally he was to keep going, he'd be one of the most unpopular drivers in Formula One history. And I honestly do not think Formula One, having stumbled upon this masterpiece of a championship battle in a year that was supposed to be a make way, supposed to be a complete throwaway. If he ruins that, then they will ruin him. Absolutely. And the thing is, I think Lewis Hamilton, we're not painting Lewis Hamilton as a saint here because obviously Lewis Hamilton in his younger years in Formula One, you know, he had made mistakes. He had, you know, been very controversial in his racing with other drivers. Other drivers have criticised him. But, you know, Lewis Hamilton has won seven championships in the past. There's no motivation for him to really do anything like this. And I very much expect Lewis Hamilton to go into this weekend, not necessarily conservatively, but knowing he's got a job to do. Both drivers know they've got a job to do. They're level on points. It's winner takes it all. But just having seen the way that Verstappen has been racing in these last few seasons, I think Lewis Hamilton has partly, I think, been so impressive over the last few races, partly because he's he's known when to bide his time. He's known to just wait for that opportunity because he backs himself to deliver on it. Whereas with Verstappen, it's this very erratic racing that we're seeing recently that has, you know, it's drawn the ire fairly of other drivers. And, 
yeah, I, I'm concerned. I don't think that's how the championship's going to end. I, I don't see it happening. I do think we could have quite a good battle between the two of them this weekend. But I honestly don't see it ending like that. I do think, though, whoever gets ahead in turn one, we have obviously seen strategy has been a big part um, for both drivers this season. We've seen how strategic calls have got one ahead of the other, for example. But I do think just because, and again, the precedent of Yas Mourinho, I think, very much suggests this, that whoever is ahead into turn one will be the driver who wins the championship. Not an unfair analysis, because again, as we've already discussed, these changes to the track don't, they don't fundamentally change the way it works. So it's not like you're guaranteed to get more overtaking. However, it is worth pointing out, as I've kind of hinted earlier, is that the whole dirty air, tough to follow, tough to overtake effect. Max and Lewis just seem immune to that somehow. Mm. It's like Lewis, especially his ability to sit behind Max theoretically burn his tyres up, theoretically be chucked around in the turbulent air, but actually just stay there and pull off an overtake. It's quite unbelievable. So I'm hoping we get the title. We don't deserve anything because we haven't put (laughs) anything into this. I certainly haven't. I refuse to pay for F1 TV. But I hope we get the fair championship fight that we deserve. I hope it isn't decided at turn one. Um, the one point that I have seen made, and I'm surprised no one else has brought it up, is that it's not out of the realms of possibility that one or both of the teams takes a new engine and a grid penalty and just cranks the power up to maximum, have it out that way. I mean, that that could it could happen, but also Yas Marina is Yas Marina. And I think that's probably the only reason why it wouldn't happen, because as we've said many times, overtaking Yas Marina isn't easy and I actually think in many ways maybe they've made it easy to overtake at one breaking zone but they've made it harder at another and I think that's going to be I think something in the end it'll just even it out so yes this is not the place perhaps to take an engine penalty of that sort um just one last thing would be before we move on to predictions and we've course this has been I think it's been a decade since we've had I think this real big chat about sort of the consumption of Formula One on terrestrial TV, because because of course this time ten years ago um, was the last time that um, the BBC held were the main rights holder of Formula One coverage here in the UK. Of course, in 2012 they started sharing it with Sky, who became the main rights holder, and the BBC went on an arrangement so their half races live, half of them as extended highlights. Now, the arrangement we have now, of course, with Sky having the exclusive live rights. Channel 4 having the highlights package apart from Silverstone. And we understand this weekend, though. They are, though, as we understand, in a raid doing the same arrangement they did with the Cricket World Cup final back in 2019 and with the US Open women's final earlier on this year, where Channel 4 aren't covering it with live with their own team. So Sky's F1 team will be leading the coverage for Channel 4. But there's been this huge debate about, obviously, the impact of having major sports and major events on terrestrial TV is a way of really generating interest in them. And certainly after the Cricket World Cup and after the um, US Open Women's Final earlier this year, we had heard of increased interest in the sport, increased take-up of cricket and tennis based upon this. Um, do you think, because obviously is Formula One is a sport that is increasingly going behind the paywall, and this is something we can discuss in a lot more depth later, but do you think that this move this weekend to have Formula One on Channel 4 could start a conversation 
about getting more live Formula One coverage on terrestrial TV, especially given all of the social media hype and the real um, social media traffic that Formula One has generated this year? It could start a conversation, but I highly doubt it will change anything major. At least this won't be what changes anything major. So you mentioned the Cricket World Cup and the increase in interest in cricket in the UK. That wasn't because it was on terrestrial TV. It's because England won. Mm. The increased interest in women's tennis at the Open earlier this year, that wasn't because it was on TV. It was because a Brit, Emma Raducanu, won. If, hypothetically, there was a big change in the way that Formula 1 was broadcasted next year and we were able somehow to get live coverage on Channel 4 or Dave or (laughs) Quest or whatever, it would not be because... It wouldn't be because we'd had a great title battle and they've managed to get the final race. It would be because Lewis Hamilton became champion and British interest rose. That's that's what it is. I mean, to be honest, it's not just Formula One. I, I don't want to sound a boomer about this because the truth is I really don't care. But over the course of our lifetimes, we've seen more and more motorsport moving off free-to-air terrestrial TV and moving elsewhere. So I, I don't really see that changing immediately, especially considering the people who are who are stewarding Formula One at this point where we're having a historic season, Sky Sports and Netflix are behind a paywall. So I don't see that changing. No, I, I don't either. And in many ways, it's not just motorsport, it's sport in general that's going behind the paywall now. And you could argue, okay, maybe a bit more choice, but certainly apart from what is perceived as, I guess, the big sporting events in this country, the World Cups, the Euros, the Olympic Games that have to be broadcast. Legally, they have to be broadcast on terrestrial TV. I think terrestrial TV is a very different place and sport has its place behind the paywall, but it is one that has very much come at the detriment to many fans' experience. But we need to make some predictions now, Joe. We're coming to the end of what has been one-off, if not the greatest seasons of all time, one-off, if not the greatest title battles of all time. And we've got to come to the end of that now and make some predictions. So I'm going to split the predictions in two. So let's start off, Joe. Firstly, pole position and your podium. Pole position, Max Verstappen. Podium... I hate saying this because actually no, I'll change it slightly. I was just I was literally gonna go the most common podium in Formula One history, officially, <laughs> Hamver Bot. Third place, Sergio Perez. Second There's no point saying second because that will determine who's first. Hamilton wins from Verstappen, becoming an eight time world champion. Ham okay. their pair. Their pair, yeah. I have got um Lewis Hamilton on pole. Lewis Hamilton to have the lead in turn one and thus win the race, win the Drivers' Championship, Verstappen in second, Valtteri Bottas in third. Mercedes have a good record at Yas Marina. basic. But the, the historical record says it all. And unlike last year, I don't see Mercedes turning the engine down at Yas Marina like they did last year. So Lewis hasn't literally just recovered from COVID as well, which does help. That, that helps as much as well. So I know we've kind of alluded to our picks, but... Finally, Joe, Drivers World Champion and Constructors World Champion. Constructors is basically sealed, right? It's Mercedes. Again, it's the modern era of Formula One. That's what happens. (laughs) Drivers, 
yeah, I think there's an argument either way, especially considering it's in terms of qualifying, how much closer Max was to Lewis than we were expecting in Jeddah. Um, but I think it's going to be Lewis by six points because Max will get fastest lap. I am going to say Lewis Hamilton by eight points. Just to throw it, he's going to get the fastest lap as well. I don't, I don't see if Red Bull are literally. I'll take the Silverstone 2020 example here. If Lewis Hamilton has something like that again on the final lap, where his tire blows out, Red Bull are going to want to be as close to Lewis Hamilton in whatever way possible. Because at the end of the day, the fastest lap point won't win him the championship. But getting past Lewis Hamilton, if he has issues on the final lap, will win him the championship. So I don't see Red Bull going at all for the fastest lap with Verstappen. I think Lewis Hamilton is going to take it and the fastest laps. But that is literally what we're talking about here. It's fine, fine margins going into the season finale. And we're all excited. Of course, we'll be back next week to review the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix and then come back as well with some end of season awards. I have been coming up with some awards based upon what we've seen this season. And I'm very much looking forward to sharing them with you later on. But Joe... It's been fantastic once again to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me at the last minute. <sighs> what are we going to do when this, this season's over? Seriously. Do you we know what, Joe? Gifted. We are going to have to make some more coverage to fill the off season. I think that's the only way we're going to get through this. But Joe, it's been fantastic to have you on. It's been fantastic to have you listening as well as ever at Armchair F1 Pod on social media, across all major streaming platforms as well. Oh, this is going to be an exciting finale. We have been spoilt. Thanks for listening.